لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم حسبنا الله ونعم الوكيل نعم المولى ونعم النصير فعوذ بالله من الشيطان العين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله ثم الصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء وسيد المرسلين وشفي المذنبين سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وتبيب وتبيب نفوسنا وشفيع ذنوبنا أبي القاسم محمد. ثم الصلاة والسلام على أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المذلومين المنتجبين لا سيما مولانا وسيدي صاحب الأسر والزمان وخليفة الرحمن روحي وأرواه العالمين له الفداء. وعجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنة دائمة على عدائهم من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين أما بعد فقد قال الله الحكيم في كتابه المبين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أن يعبد الله واتقوه وأتيون صدق الله العلي والعظيم for the hastening of the return of our 12th Imam to avenge the tragedy of Karbala and to bring the Qatlan of Abba Abdullah to justice in this world one salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad أعظم الله وجورنا وجوركم بمصابنا بأبي عبد الله الحسين عليه الصلاة والسلام. May Allah magnify our rewards for for remembering and commemorating the tragedy of Abu Abdullah عليه السلام. And may Allah make each and every one of us amongst the helpers and assistants of our twelfth Imam when he returns to establish justice and to bring the killers of Abu Abdullah and his family and friends. To the ultimate level of justice in this world, we ask Allah to be allowed to be raised on that day to help our 12th Imam to bring about that movement to bring justice in the, tra in the tragedy of Karbala. Tonight being the night of the 10th night of Muharram, tomorrow being the day of Ashura, we have this last opportunity together to discuss the topic that I've been reviewing this year in the month of Muharram. And I first off also wanted to extend my uh, appreciation to the executive committee for inviting me to be with you this year. I thank each and every one of you for uh, being present every night in these majalis. I ask your forgiveness because many nights I went over the time limit and I ask you to forgive me for that, for taking more of your time than was required. And I ask Allah to accept all of your acts of worship, all of your tears that were shed for the love of Lady Zahra and her family. We ask Allah to collect all those tears and allow those tears to be a way for the fire of hell to be cooled, that we never have to face any of the areas of Jahannam, and that through our love for Abu Abdullah, through the tears that we shed, for the poetry that has been recited night after night, for the volunteers that gave their time, for the donors who gave their money, for everybody who gave their time to come to the Majalis, we ask Allah to accept this act of worship and join us together, inshallah, maybe one day we can all be together under the golden dome of Abba Abdullah in Karbala alayhi salam. And then we can make dua to Allah through Abba Abdullah under the blessed dome where all of our duas will be accepted. We ask Allah for that tawfiq and we ask Allah to give us the ability to perform the ziyarat of all of the ma'asameen. Alayhum as-salatu wassalam with the barakat of a salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. So as we know that the theme that I have been going over this year in Muharram is 
living Islam, making it or understanding Islam to be a practical religion, not just the faith that was brought 1400 years ago, not just a faith for the East, but a faith for all time, for all people, for all regions upon the earth. You know, one of the strange ironies of the world that we live in is that if you are to go to a bookstore, and I know most of them are maybe closed or very limited because of COVID, but I remember when I used to go to places like Chapters, if you have a Chapters bookshop here in Saskatoon, they would have a section on religion called Eastern Religions. And there would be Islam and Buddhism and all the other isms. But then for some strange reason, Christianity would be in a separate category in and to itself. As if Prophet Jesus did not come in the East, as if they think he came into London or Paris or Toronto. And that shows us, unfortunately, the bias that this society has with Islam. You know, something as simple as that as a bookstore, leaving Islam to be relegated to the Eastern, Eastern religion section, whereas other religions are given prominence. And obviously, we don't expect anything more from them because of the nature of the system that we live in. This discussion we began with on the first night of Muharram, we looked at this verse from chapter 71, verse number 3, which was, as I mentioned, the invitation of Prophet Noah alayhi salam, Prophet Nuh to his community. Now we don't know how many thousand years ago Prophet Nuh came, we have no idea, but we know he came to humanity. He was, according to some traditions, the ninth generation after Prophet Adam alayhi salam. Others say the fourth or third or fourth generation. But he came with a message which was to know Allah, to know the Creator, to have good morals, a good moral standing, a good moral compass, and to also follow Allah, to worship Allah as He wants to be worshipped, as He deems us to worship Him. Now as I've been mentioning this verse over the last two nights and mentioning certain uh, you know, examples within it, one of the things that some people may be thinking is that, well, this was a message for thousands of years ago to Prophet Noah and his community. Did Allah not update the system? Because if you recall from the first or second night, I talked about the fact that Islam, Islam, we want to call it Islam 2.0 or Islam 3.0, is a continuation of previous dispensations. Before us, other communities had Islam. What Prophet Moses gave was Islam. What Prophet, before him, Prophet Ibrahim gave was Islam. Prophet Musa had Islam. Prophet Isa, alayhi salam, alayhi salam, they all had Islam. And what the Prophet of Allah brought us was an upgrade to the system. It was a perfection of the teachings. But people might say, well, this is the Quran and this is about Prophet Noah. Where in the Quran can you show me that Islam that we follow has this same kind of breakdown. Where can we find in the Quran today if somebody were to stop you at work or at school or on the street and they know that you're a Muslim, what verse, and they were to ask you, describe Islam for me in a nutshell. Describe your religion for me in such a way that I can appreciate the full gambit of the teachings, the entire spectrum of Islam Give me one verse of your book to prove your religion and what it follows. What verse would we give them? Would it be a verse from Surah Fatiha? Maybe that's the only chapter we've memorized. Would it be Surah Ikhlas? 
say there is only one God? Well, that is the pinnacle of Islam is Tawheed, monotheism. But what verse could we give to a non-believer to show them the teachings of Islam in one comprehensive package? The verse I've been telling you every night from chapter 71 won't cut it. It tells us, you know, three aspects, but there's no, there's nothing that would define what the religion is. And so tonight I want to reflect on verse number 177 of chapter number two. It's a verse to keep in mind to go home and read, to study it, to find commentaries of it, because I think from my perspective, chapter two, verse 177 has the most comprehensive framework for the religion of Islam. What is our belief system? What is our moral system, our moral compass? And what is our uh, jurisprudential? What is the ahkam, the rules of Islam that we follow? In this verse, Allah begins by saying, لَيْسَ Allah says godliness, bir, piety, righteousness, religiosity. To be a good Muslim, does it mean that you turn your face towards the east and the west? Now what Allah means here is that religiosity, to be a good Muslim, doesn't mean that you're only focusing on prayers, on your namaz, on your salat. He uses East and West as an example because he is speaking about the Jewish people, the Christian people who used to turn to a particular Qibla, a particular direction when they used to pray. And they thought, well, because we pray to this direction, we're religious people. Because we pray towards Jerusalem, they would say, we're holy, we're religious, we're spiritual, we're the best of the best with a creme de la creme. Or they would say, because we prayed towards, I don't know, the Vatican, or that direction, or Bethlehem, where Jesus was reported to have been born, they felt they were the best of people. And maybe as Muslims, we fall into that same trap. We pray towards the Qibla in Mecca. So we think because we pray in a direction, that we are the chosen people of God. You know, we have hadith that tell us that never become uh, overwhelmed by the copious amounts of praying and fasting somebody does. You see somebody who prays a lot, don't be amazed at that because, or you see somebody who fasts con continuously, the hadith says, don't be amazed by that because you and I can become habituated to praying. You know, people when they get older and they retire, they have nothing else better to do. So they spend the whole day on the musalla. People who, for example, Maybe you want to lose weight. They start fasting every day in the winter time because it's a good way to lose weight. But the hadith says, don't be amazed at people who pray a lot or fast a lot. Rather look at the truthfulness in their speech. Sidqul hadith wa ada'ul amanat. And are they trustworthy? When you give them a trust, are they going to give it back to you? When you tell them a secret, will they keep it? Or will they go and broadcast it on Instagram? Or will they become the you know, the, the whole, the, the spreader of gossip in the community through all these WhatsApp groups and messages that fly around. So Allah says, Don't think you're pious because you pray. Right? That's not a mark of piety. Allah says, Walakin al-bir, Piety, godliness, virtue, 
Religion, if you want to explain it to your, if you want to understand it yourself, if you want to explain it to people, Allah says, Man amana billah, the very first thing is to believe in Allah, believe in the one true God. And as I said previously, belief isn't just, I believe in God. No, we have to, at our own level, for whatever age we are in this room, from you know, pre-teens to teenagers to adults to the seniors, we all have to recognize and know Allah at our level of intellect. We don't have to become philosophers and know all of the philosophical arguments to debunk atheism or to you know, debunk a multiplicity of gods. We have to know God at our level. And then we can worship Him. So the first commi commitment is believe in God. Number two, as the Quran says, وَالْيَوْمِ To believe in the Day of Judgment. As I mentioned every night or a few nights, that one-third of the Qur'an speaks about Yawmul Qiyamah. One-third of this book, 2,000 verses, is all about the end of this world, the Day of Judgment, our accountability to Allah. And then number three, Allah says to believe in Wal Malaika, to believe in the angels. We don't see angels, but we believe there are literally thousands of angels right now in this room. We believe that there are tens of thousands of angels that are doing the tawaf, not of, Kar not of the Kaaba, of Karbala, the Kaaba of our hearts, as the ulama call Karbala. There are thousands upon thousands of angels who have thrown the dirt of Karbala on their head proverbially and are going around the Kaaba of Abba Abdullah. We don't see them when we go. Maybe if we're at that spiritual level, maybe you feel them. Maybe you sense the aroma of the angels. But we believe according to Hadith that there are angels who were there on the day of Ashura and they never left the grave or the body of Abba Abdullah. Imagine that brothers and sisters, angels are still in Karbala from the 10th of Muharram 61 till today, 2021, until the end. They will be there doing tawaf around the grave of Abba Abdullah, weeping, crying, reciting nawhaz, remembering the tragedy of Karbala. So number three, after belief in Allah, the Day of Judgment is the angels, wal kitab, and to believe in, in the book. Notice Allah didn't say wal qutub, the books, the plural. He said wal kitab. Why did he say the plural, uh, singular, not the plural? Because as Muslims, we believe that what Prophet Musa gave, what Prophet Isa gave, what Rasulullah has within the Quran, the teachings, as I said, were universal. Different systems for different times, but the message was one and the same. The aqaid was the same. Jesus never said, worship me and my mother other than Allah. Prophets that came to Bani Israel, they never said, worship me. No, they all said, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. So the message is universal. Unfortunately, we know today that the Old, Old Testament, the New Testament, what the Jewish and Christian community follow is not what Allah revealed. That is not the holy book. There is additions, omissions, subtractions, corruptions, alterations. But wherever the Bible, the Old and New Testament, if they fit with the Quran, because the Quran is the Furqan, it, it differentiates, then we accept that of the Bible. But if it goes against, and most of it goes against Islamic ethos and aqaid, we have to reject it. 
So we believe in the book that God sent, one Nabi'in and the prophets. We don't distinguish, we, we don't differentiate. As Allah says, La nufariku bayna ahadim min al-rusul. We as Muslims don't say, our prophet is better than your prophet. Jesus is better than Ismail. Yunus is better than Ya'aqub. No, we believe all of them to be at the same level. But with that, we believe if Allah tells you and I that one prophet is better, then obviously we have to say, We hear you Allah and we obey. So when Allah tells us, Ulul Azm are five, Nu, Ibrahim, Musa, Isa, and Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. We don't differentiate, but Allah has a right to tell you and I which of my prophets is better. And when he tells us that the final prophet is Khatum al-Nabi'in, he's the seal of all the prophets, then we know that he's the best, he is the top. You don't get better than that. After that, that is the aqayid, the, the basic principles of Islam Allah gives us in this verse. Again, you want to tell Islam to a non-Muslim, this is the verse you show them. From there, we move into some of the akhlaq of Islam. Part of Islam is to give your wealth, your money. Even though you and I love money, who in here would say, I hate money? I don't want my money. If anybody were to say that, then I think our president would gladly take your bank balance and your bank account and your credit cards and your checks and expand what they want to expand. But we love wealth and there's nothing wrong with that if it's used for the right way. So we have families to maintain, we have to put food on the table, we have to clothe our children, we have to get our children married within the community, we have to provide religious education for our children. But Allah says one requirement for being a Muslim is that you give the wealth that you have, although you and I love it, we have this attachment to our wealth. And the first group Allah says we have to help is the wil qurba, our family members. You know, I've mentioned this many times in other communities. I want to stress it here tonight that hadith tell us that you cannot give sadaqah or charity to other people in other countries while your own family is suffering. But if your mother and father are retired or whatever the situation is and they can't take care of themselves, it's your obligation as a son, as a daughter to take care of your mom and dad. If you have a brother or a sister and they lose their job or they are finding it difficult to maintain their life, especially in COVID era, and you're sending your sadaqah overseas, your sadaqah could technically not be valid because your family comes first. That's not me, that's the Quran. Allah starts with the family. Focus on the family. Make sure your family is taken care of. As I give the example of the flight where you put the oxygen mask on first and then everybody else, your family comes first and then the world. So give the wealth to your family. Waliyatama, the orphans. We probably don't have orphans in Canada. We might have some, but very rarely. But you look at Iraq, millions of orphans, millions because of the cursed Daesh, because of the cursed Saddam, all of these evil entities because of obviously those who put Saddam into power, those who supported Daesh in their endeavors. Millions of orphans in Iraq, in Syria, in Pakistan, 
in Afghanistan, in India, right? We don't have orphans here, maybe in Canada, or we have a few, but imagine the millions of children who do not have a mother and father to bring them to the majlis and to hold them like this young boy is here tonight, or the young girls who are upstairs in their, in, with their mother holding them. Orphans don't have that love, don't have that support. And so we have to think about them. And you know, when we give overseas, our money goes so much further. Here, $50 a month, you go to a restaurant for dinner, you can easily spend 300 bucks on a family for four for dinner, or five for dinner. But you send that $50 to Iraq or Pakistan or Afghanistan, you can support an orphan for a whole month maybe. So Islam says, take care of the orphans. What about after that? Wal-masakin, the poor people. Masakin here could be Muslims or could be non-Muslims. Many times you might walk down the street of Saskatoon and see a homeless beggar. Why not, if you don't want to give him money because you're worried he might use it so, to buy something illicit, go and buy him a cup of coffee. Ask him, do you want a sandwich? Do you want a cup of coffee? Do you kind of go buy you some food? That's sadaqah as well, to help the needy people in the society. And then Allah says, Wabna Sabil. Wabna Sabil is those people who are traveling on a journey and they're stuck. It doesn't really apply to us, I would say, too much, you know, because today you're in Canada, you go from, you know, you're in Saskatoon, somebody comes from out of town, they can just charge it on their credit card and fill up their tank of gas or, you know, uh, update their maps or whatever. It might be pertinent in some limited instances, but not too frequently. But you look at it, from a thousand years ago or other parts of the Muslim Ummah which are not as advanced as we are perhaps. And maybe Wabna Sabil, those who are stranded, may be a relevant way to spend money and to help them out. And then Allah says, Wasailina, those people who come and they beg and they ask you for help. It could either be a begging as in they need help and you have you help them, or it could be they need a loan. Right? Unfortunately, as a community of believers in North America, we don't have a process where we can get interest-free loans. We go to the bank. So many of our university-aged brothers and sisters, they want to go to university. If their parents don't have the funds, they have to apply for, uh, you know, maybe get scholarships, get grants, maybe they have to get loans, they pay interest on it. I've met youth who can't get married because they don't have the money to get married and provide for their spouse. Allah says to give to the sa'ilin, the people who ask. But we also have to extend that and recognize as an ummah, as a community, we have to provide a system of economics for our community. You know, I've seen where I live in Ontario, a small group of Christians known as the Mennonites, very traditional Christians. Some of them don't even drive a car. Literally, they'll come to town in a horse and buggy. In 2021, I've seen this, I've been to their homes. They refuse electricity, they refuse any utilities, they live a very traditional life. I visited them. They, as a small group of maybe 100,000, maybe 200,000, they have their own banking system in Canada. It's something for us to think about, especially the young women and men who are maybe going into finance and business and economics. Can we ever create a Muslim-based banking system in Canada? That we can help one another, we can provide, we can have investments, we can have all of the things that a regular bank has. But imagine, call it the bank of Imam Hussein or the bank of Karbala, 
You have Bank of Nova Scotia, you have Bank of Montreal, why not Bank of Karbala? Bank of Najaf. And we give to people based on Islamic principles. And that will be a form of tabligh. Because they'll go online, what is Karbala? What is Najaf? And they would read it, and hopefully they would be inspired through that. So, wasailina wa fil People who are riqab, people who are slaves. Now, we don't have slavery as in 1400 years ago or 400 years ago in America, when the American country was established by stealing people from Africa, making them as slaves to make them build America, free men and women who were taken as free men and converted into slaves. We don't have that process anymore. But look at how many sweatshops we have in Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in India, in the Far East, people that work for dollars a day. You know, you watch these documentaries by CBC and BBC that there are children who make running shoes for three or four dollars a day, they get paid, and we buy those shoes for $200, $300. They're in a form of slavery over there. They're not slave as in they're chained with shackles on their hands and legs. No, but they're in an economic slavery that the system has put them in. And maybe we have to see how can we help those people get out of that level of poverty so those children can go to school, get an education, be like our children, have a normal life. So, so far in verse 177, Allah covers aqayid to an extent. He covers akhlaq to an extent. Obviously, there's much more that Allah talks about in other verses. But then at the third level, he talks about some of the ahkam, the practicality, the practical rulings. The very first thing Allah says is, وَأَقَامَ salat To establish the prayers. The same salat that Abu Abdullah even though the enemies were going to shower arrows against him on the day Asr of Ashura and he had two men stand in front who were taking arrows into their body. That is the salah Allah says to establish. And so when we see that people are doing matam and the adhan is going on, or people are doing matam and the namaz is being performed in jamaat, imagine the hurt this is causing to the heart of Abu Abdullah. Probably more than those arrows that pierced his companions, the arrows that pierced his body, are the arrows that we shoot at Abu Abdullah. When we say, Ashadu annaka kad akamta salah wa ataita zakah wa amarta bil ma'ruf wa nahayta anil munkar wa ataata allaha wa rasulahu hatta ataqal yaqeen. We say, we bear witness you established the salah, but we say, Ya Abu Abdullah, I'm going to beat my chest for another half an hour and then I'll go and pray. What would we do on the day of Ashura? Would we say, Ya Abu Abdullah, you know what? I don't have time to pray right now. There's some things going on. You go and pray and the arrows will hit him, hit his body, and then we'll look and we'll turn around and he'll be dead on the ground. Right? So Allah says, salat That the very important, fundamental building block of Islamic connection to Allah, of spirituality, whatever you want to call it, is... The daily namaz, the daily prayers. We can't say, I'm busy, I'm at work. 
No, as I told you, I worked in corporate Canada for 10 years. I never had to say, I'm busy, I can't go and pray. Then I'll make my namaz kazan, I'll pray at home later at night. No, you adjust the schedule as much as you can, but you pray your salat at work, at school, in the park, on vacation, on a plane. But you pray the salat. You don't say, there's matam going on, let me finish one more matam, one more, one more. No, that can wait. The salat has to be done first. And then Allah says, وَآتَزْ zakat, Give the charity. Again, I talked about zakat. Don't think of it as that tax on gold and silver and animals and wheat and barley and dates and raisins. No, this is an overarching umbrella term for charity. Khums is in there, zakat is in there, all of the forms of taxation. You know, as some of our scholars say that those Shia that don't give their khums, we say, I'm not going to give my khums because I don't trust this marja or this representative, or I just don't believe in the system. Although it's in the Quran, there are 30 to 40 hadith about khums. Some scholars give the example of the fact how the second Khalifa stole Fadak away from Janaba Fatima alayhi salam. They took her right away of Fadak. And by us not giving khums, we're taking the right away of the 12th Imam. So what's the difference between me if I don't pay khums and the second Khalifa who took away the haq of Ali Muhammad? It seems as there's little difference between the two because we're both taking the haq of Ali Muhammad. One man did it by ripping away the title deed that she was given and we do it by not giving the khums which is due upon us. So the second thing is wa'ata's zakat. And then Allah says, ahadu." That when you make a promise, you keep that promise. You tell a friend, I'm going to be there tomorrow at 3 o'clock to help you out. And you might say, inshallah, at the end of the sentence. But make sure that inshallah is not a fake inshallah. Because how many times do we do that? Inshallah, I'll be there. And then we don't go and help. We say, well, Allah didn't want me to be there. I said, inshallah, and it didn't happen. No. And if you make a promise to a friend or a family member or your colleague at work, we have to fulfill the promise. You make a promise to the jamaat, you're going to donate X amount of money week, monthly, or one lump sum payment. You make a promise, keep that promise because the Quran says, those people who fulfill their promise, this is a part of our religion. We are honest, we are trustworthy. To the point where as the story tells us that Imam Zain al-Abidin after the tragedy of Karbala, he tells us that had the killer of my father come to me with the dagger that he used to kill my father, day of Ashura, that cursed man, he comes and he stabs Abu Abdullah 12 times with a dagger and then he severs his head. Imam Zain al-Abidin says if that man came with that dagger and asked me to keep it as an amanat for him, and he came back later and asked that for that dagger back, I would give it back to him. Because he asked me to keep an amanat, a trust for him. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, that the fourth Imam telling us that? To be truthful and keep your promises, and if we break our promise, we're, what kind of a situation would we, we, would we should we think ourselves to be in? And then Allah says, وَالسَّابِرِينَ فِي الْبَعْسَاءِ Akhlaq, back to the morality. He says, those people who have patience, who have supper, who have fortitude, in times of 
when they're in, uh, in, in, in difficulties and misfortunes and mishaps in their life, when things are not going good. You know, many times something bad happens to us and we say, why me? Ya Allah, I came to the majlis of Abu Abdullah, I cried. I did this, I did that, I made niyaz, I made a nazar, I did all of these things, and yet the bad still happened to me. You know, never say, why me? Rather say, why not me? Right? This life is a test. Allah says that this life is nothing but a temporary diversionary pleasure. It's full of examinations. You think we're going to have it harder than Abu Abdullah loses all of his friends, loses his entire family in the course of a few hours? And we maybe lose our job, we maybe have an accident, our car is a write-off, and we complain, where a little thing will, I'm not saying little in terms of, because when you go through a problem, you yourself know how difficult it is, but in the grand scheme of things, to lose your son, to know your women will be taken captives, that they will be put into chains and all of that, that is, a, that is sadness, that is a sorrow. And if Abba Abdullah can have patience in all of that, it gives you and I a glimmer of how we should react and how we should go through challenges in our lives. And then Allah says at the end of this verse, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ سَدَكُوا When you have all of these qualities in verse 177 of Surah Baqarah, then Allah says you can be considered as being a truthful person. One who is truthful to your claim of being a believer in Islam. And that you are one of those who are the pious ones, the ones with taqwa, the ones with consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. One more salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. And so as I begin to round out for tonight, you know, the topic for this night was life. This acronym, Living Islam Faithfully and Ethically, L-I-F-E. How do I live Islam faithfully and ethically in Canada when it's a secular system, it's not built on Islamic morals. We've looked at a lot of these aspects. So I won't repeat it tonight. But how do we live in a country where, forget about our freedoms, as example, our sisters in Quebec are not allowed to wear hijab and work in the public sphere, in the government arena. But in, we live in an era and in an area where our iman is being eroded away. We live in a country where there are sins that are around us everywhere. And so our Iman every day could be being chipped away. And how do we rebuild that faith when we leave the home and we potentially might lose a tenth of our Iman or a portion of our Iman? Obviously that's an answer which requires, that's a question which requires a lengthy answer and I don't have the time. Tonight maybe another time we might discuss it. But we have to also recognize brothers and sisters as I conclude that we have to constantly make one special dua to Allah which is the hasten the return of our 12th Imam, Imam Al-Hujjah, Ajjalallahu Ta'ala Farajahu Sharif. We have to recognize that without him, we are useless. We will not be able to get to that level that we make the dua for in the, in the month of Ramadan, 
where we say, Allahumma inna nalghabu ilayka fi dawlatin karima, that perfectly desired state, the perfect country, we will never reach that on our own. The prophets that came in the past never reached it. Not that they were deficient, no, but there was a goal and an agenda Allah had in mind. And so we have to make that dua constantly. Sometimes we underestimate dua. We have to recognize that the dua is the weapon of the believer. It has the power to change our destiny. We have to recognize that we have to be practical, live the practicalities of Islam that I've been looking at over these 10 nights, and recognize the fact that we can never live in an Islamic state until we are having an Islamic state of mind. We can never live in an Islamic state until we are in an Islamic state of mind. You could be, you could be living in a Muslim country or a so-called country as we see what's happening in many parts of the world that have revolutions and overthrowing of governments and implementing Islam or their version of Islam. But until the people are not in an Islamic state of mind, recognizing their obligations, it'll be difficult to live in that system because you'll want your freedoms. Freedom to do this, freedom to do that, freedom to go against the rules of God. And we have to recognize that until and unless we get into that Islamic state of mind, we would never be able to function within an Islamic government. The 12th Imam could come tomorrow. But if we're not ready and inclined to live under the rule of Islam, guess what? We're not going to be successful in that government. We might make the dua, Allahumma kulli waliyika, and we stand, we put our hand on our head, which is great. But if we're not in that mindset, we won't live, we won't be able to live in the government of our 12th Imam. So that calls for us to be able to plan to get ready for that government, for that time of that Dawlatun Karima, that noble state, that ennobled country that the 12th Imam can only bring about, that every other ism, every other ideology has not been able to produce for humanity. Salu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. And the beauty of us having 14 masumin, 14 infallibles to learn from, to attend their waladats, to attend their shahadat majlis, is that our guidance continues until the end. And as we have marja'iyat, as I've talked about in the last few nights, it's a continuation of that process. It gives us the ability to live Islam faithfully, to be true to our teachings, to be true to our spiritual roots, to be able to have that firm adherence to the teachings of the faith, of the ideals that Islam came to instill within our hearts. Having them 14 infallibles, having marja'iyat means we can become ethical believers, meaning that we can deal with the good and the bad that comes up in our lives based on a moral duty and obligation we have. Not that our moral compass will change. No, it will remain straight. Allah will put us on that path. The Ahlul Bayt will keep us on that path. And in times of ease, we will know how to react. In times of difficulty, we will be able to react. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, as we mark tonight the night of Hazrat Ali Akbar and we remember this young man, I think many of the young men I see in front of me tonight were the same age as Hazrat Ali Akbar And him being brought up and born in the lap of Nubuwa and Imama, being a child who was surrounded by Ma'asumin 
being a man who was brought up, a child, a young man, a grown man who was brought up on the ideals of Islam, he knew how to react in every situation. 